Would you guys give it up for the band one more time? Just leading us in worship. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Ben, for doing that. Uh, thank you for being here. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. Uh, always good to worship with you guys. Uh, that's what we've been doing. We're going to continue to worship as we open God's word. So I would invite you to grab a copy of God's word. If you have one near you, grab that. Uh, head to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the four gospels, the, the accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to Mark. And we're going to Mark chapter 11. So head there. Uh, always know, we have Bibles as you walk through those double doors into the sanctuary. If you don't have a Bible, always grab one of those in the bookshelf. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. That's our gift. We'd love for you, we always say this, to get the, the word of God in front of you. That's where the power is. Amen? And so we want you to get God's word, even if you have to do it on an app on your phone. Get God's word in front of you. Mark chapter 11. If you are new with us, uh, we've been in a series called Who Do You Say That I Am in the Gospel of Mark? And just trekking through the life of Jesus. We're already 10 chapters through this gospel looking at the life of Jesus and how his life affects our lives. And what we've called the series is Who Do You Say That I Am? And we see that moment. We saw it on Easter, that pivotal moment. Mark is 16 chapters we find that moment in Mark chapter 8, the turning point literally in the book where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they get the answer right. If you remember the answer, he is the Christ. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming one, the one that would, that would come and reign and set the people free. And Jesus says, yeah, you're, you're right, I am the Christ, but but you don't really know what that means yet. And so between Mark chapter 8 and we're in Mark 11, we see Jesus describe what it means that he's the Christ. We see him describe that he's going to go on to die. And not just die, but be humiliated. And he includes that he's going to rise, but, but nobody really hears the resurrection. They just hear, wait, you're going to die? Like that's not the Messiah, the Christ that we were hoping for, that we were looking for from the Old Testament. So Jesus, three times, three chapters, explains that to him, but nobody gets it. Well, now, Mark chapter 11, we're nearing the point where they are going to get it because they're going to see it. They're going to see Jesus be mocked and spit upon and flogged and betrayed and killed on a cross. We are at Mark chapter 11, the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. It's about to happen. They're approaching Jerusalem. They're on the cusp of entering the city where all of these events are going to take place. And the most significant event of all of history is going to take place, the cross and the resurrection. So we're on the cusp of that. We're almost there, but we need to see a couple things. And Jesus is going to show us a couple things that we haven't seen before. He's going to show us two unique moments. And ways that he carries himself that we haven't seen. Mark chapter 1 through 10, we haven't seen these things, and we're going to see them now. And what you see with Mark is he starts to hone in on these things. Like Mark, again, 16 chapters, 1 through 10 is about three years of Jesus' life. 11 through 16 is one week. Mark is this fast-paced, quick-hitting gospel, immediately is mentioned 40-plus times in the gospel he slows it down. Mark 11 through 16 slows it down to look at these significant moments, to look at the cross, to look at the resurrection, and look at the lead up to that. And so we're going to see two unique moments that lead up to that. So I want you to look at it with me. If you take notes, here's the title of the message today. It's Praise, Pruning, and Prayer. Praise, Pruning, and Prayer. Let's look at it together. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, 
go into the village in front of you, and immediately, there he is again, immediately, still going fast paced, Mark. As you enter it, you will find a colt, colt tied, which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. Now, most of us, if you've never read an, rode an animal before, even if you haven't, you're not a cowboy. I don't think, any cowboys in the room? I didn't think so, um, in the desert in Phoenix. But most of us, we, we know, like common knowledge just from movies, right, that you ride an animal that's been broken. It's interesting, Jesus asked for the one that hasn't, never been ridden before. Jesus is, is the king, he's the mighty one, but he's also the meek one. And, and he's going to ride an animal that's not going to buck him, and he's just going to let him ride him. Just unique, as, as Jesus comes and he says, I want a colt that's never been ridden before. Not a broken in horse, a stallion, a mighty war horse. Jesus asked for a colt. That's going to be important as we go. He says, untie it and, and bring it. And I love this. He says, if anyone says to you, what are you doing? Like, why are you taking our colt? Say, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> and we'll send it back here immediately. I, I just love the conciseness of Jesus. Like, just tell him I needed it. Who? The Lord needed it. And it says, they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside. And they do what he says, in the street, and they untie it. Verse 5, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said, and they, they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those went before, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, as we start, you get some geographic details. We see verse 1. Look at it with me. He drew near. They drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, to Bethany, the Mount of Olives. That's right on the cusp of Jerusalem. And we're seeing this first unique moment with Jesus that we haven't seen before. It's the kingship of Jesus. Right? We see the kingship of Jesus. He's been on this road toward Jerusalem. That's not unique. What's unique is he's going to ride in to this city of Jerusalem. If you know your Jewish history, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you would know Jerusalem is the center of the universe for Jewish people. It's the center of a religious practice for Jewish people. This is where Jesus is finally there. They've been walking towards Jerusalem. And as he's finally there, I'm going to stop walking and I'm going to ride. Why? If you think about it, Mark chapters 1 through 10, Jesus never rode anywhere. What did he do? He walked. He walked. He taught. Crowds gathered. Maybe every once in a while he got in a boat if he had to cross sea. But, but most of the time, Jesus just walked. Here he rides because he's coming into the Mecca, the religious center of the universe, Jerusalem. And he says, hey, now go get that colt. I need to ride in. Why? Because he's a king. And in that day... Kings didn't walk in, they rode in. And you start to see the kingship of Jesus for the very first time as he rides into Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't ride into Jerusalem like any other king because he's not any other king, right? Most kings in that day, they would ride in on that mighty war horse. There would be a chariot behind. There would be this, this huge commotion. And Jesus says, I'm a king, I'm majestic, but I'm also meek. Like, I'm powerful, but I'm also humble. So I am a king, and I'm going to ride into the city of Jerusalem, but I'm going to do it on an unbroken little colt with some cloaks on it and people waving palm branches and putting them out in front. Right? 
We see the kingship of Jesus, but we see that his kingship is unique just as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The second way we see the kingship of Jesus is the response of people. Look at the text. You see people are crying things out. Hosanna, Hosanna. This is both petition and praise. It's, it's petition. Literally, that word Hosanna means save us. Jesus, save us. And, and if you can picture it, it says many people in verse 8. Many people are crying out, Hosanna, save us. You should picture a big crowd doing that. We know from scholars that maybe at this time Jerusalem was about 80,000 people strong. But this is a different week. This is Passover week. And so Thousands and hundreds of thousands of people maybe even are converging on this holy city, Jerusalem, to make uh, sacrifices during Passover week. And so when it says many people are crying out, Hosanna, you should picture a lot of people, right? Don't picture like a farmer's market with just a few people. Picture Black Friday Walmart, Right? There's masses of amounts of people. Jesus is rolling through on this little colt with cloaks on top, and he's rolling through as this majestic and meek king, and there's crowds of people loudly crying out, save us, Jesus. But it's not just a petition, it's also a praise. What they are do, doing and, and laying cloaks on the ground, that's an honor of a king. They're saying, hey, not just save us like we hope you will. They're saying you are the Savior. We're proclaiming that right now. We're praising you that you are Jesus. You are Hosanna. You have come. And we get a hint of that as they quote Psalm 118 and chant this and maybe even sing it. The Psalms were songs. And so maybe they're even singing this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are getting their praise on. Can you picture it? They are celebrating Jesus, the kingship of Jesus. And you need to know, as we look at the kingship of Jesus, Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. The only appropriate response to that is this. It's a crowd gathered. It's putting out things in front of him and, and honoring him and saying, Jesus, at the same time, I need a petition for you to save me because, wow, you're a king and I'm, I'm not deserving of you and I need you. Jesus, save me. But at the same time, save me, save me desperate. But you are the savior. They're celebrating. They're praising Jesus. And that's the appropriate response when you see Jesus as king. That's why we sing songs in church. If you didn't know, if you're new to church, we don't just go through the motions and try to spend some time before we get to the message and, and kill that time so you're ready for this. That, that's not what we're doing, right? We're looking at Jesus as king and we're honoring him as such. That's when we sing loud. That's when we raise our hands, right? This is the mark of a Christian, this praise of seeing King Jesus and praising him for it. We see that in the Old Testament, lots of places. One specifically, a whole chapter in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, they're, they're building this wall, and, and it's a lot of detail and all these actions of building a wall, and they're on mission for Jesus. But then we see one chapter where they, where they stop building and they celebrate. And it's very extensive. They get serious about their, their party, right? They, they, they celebrate, and we see the significance of that just in Nehemiah. We see it in a guy like St. Augustine, a theologian. He said this. He said, in God's home, there is an everlasting party. Anybody grow up in church? Yeah, a few of you guys. You ever heard the Christian life described as an everlasting party? You should. Right? We're, we're celebrating the king has come, right? That we have a party. We, we celebrate that. St. Augustine says that, and he says, hey, it's not just a passing moment. I love this. He says, it's, it's a celebrating where the choirs of angels keep eternal festival. 
for the eternally present face of God is joy never diminished. The Christian life is marked by praise, celebration. That's when we take moments to stop and celebrate. That's why last Sunday we missed one of those moments, and we're going to talk about it briefly now because we missed a moment to celebrate. Last Sunday was our year anniversary of being in this location, and that's something to celebrate. Uh, Whether you know the story or not, you can celebrate that. It's okay to clap in church. It's okay to celebrate. Um, But that's something to celebrate. And after Sunday, I was like, told our, our church minister, I was like, man, we forgot this. That's a year in this location. And, and if you weren't around then, it, it is something to celebrate and to stop and to praise King Jesus for. Because we didn't just like, uh, we're a four and a half year old church right now. And we didn't just say it at three and a half years old, like, it's time for our next step. Let's go from a school and set up and tear down church. You know, I don't know, let's go from there, I don't know, to like a church building. <laughs> And, like, maybe it could fit, like, 300 chairs if we had to, and we could do two services. Like, that wasn't the plan. And if you've shown up in the last year, maybe you think that was the plan, and God bless you. I'm glad you're here. But that's not how it happened. We were at a school, the short story is, for the life of our church almost, and we got an eviction notice with six weeks to move. School was having some problems. We were going to get evicted. And just so you know, in, like, the church building world, like, planting a church, that's not a good thing, Right? And, but through that obstacle, God provided opportunity. And we prayed, and God, King Jesus, showed up, and he made provision, and he took us from a school and an eviction to a church building and a kingdom outpost, an opportunity to plant roots in the city and see the love of Jesus move in us, but also through us in this city and make impact. And over the last year, we've seen that. We've seen imperfect people be moved by the perfect love of Jesus through things like baptisms and that we've had more baptisms in this one year than we've had in the entire life of our church. We've seen more impact in this school that's across the street. If you didn't know, Phoenix Christian School literally has the nations represented in their school. They're a diverse school. They literally have kids who who don't know Jesus, who just go to this school because they're from a bad area and they need a good school to go to, and they know Phoenix Christian will be a good school, and so they come here. And we've gotten to serve cold brew coffee and provide staff lunch and and do work days and even our Easter offering, give them $7,500 to renovate a space that the kids enter a lot, and we want it to be a blessing to them. And and we've gotten to see this impact and love moving in and through our church because of an eviction at a school. And so we missed celebrating that last Sunday. And I said, we're going to celebrate that this Sunday. And so we're going to praise Jesus for that. And we need to stop, and you need to stop in your life, because the reason why we celebrate is not just Jesus as king and giving him honor. It's, it's giving him honor for the work he's done in your life. That anytime you praise God and you celebrate him, you're recognizing that every success you've had, every success you've had personally, relationally, financially, spiritually, as a church, is not because of you. It's because of the mighty grace of God. That's when we celebrate So I want to take a moment and celebrate that with you. Let's just clap one more time. Can we celebrate? Thank you. The Christian life is marked by celebration. But as we get here, the clapping doesn't last long, and the celebrating doesn't last forever yet. Why? Jesus needs to do some pruning. And if we're going to talk about it, there's a fig tree involved, lots of things going on. But the reason why we prune is to remove things so there can be growth and so there can be more celebration. But before we get to the more celebration, we have to get to the pruning, and that's our second point. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says this. 
and he, that's Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for as it, it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, if you, if you were paying attention at all, one thing that might be running through your mind is, that's a little weird. Right? Jesus shows up to a fig tree, he's hungry, it has no figs, and he curses it right then and there. Right? And you might be thinking, that's a little weird, and we can just all acknowledge that together. It's church, it's okay, we can be honest. That's a little weird, right? That's a little, as I read that, I thought, well, that, that's a little weird, Jesus. Like, that's a weird sequence. Like, what's going on there? And my first thought was, Jesus is a carpenter, not an arborist, right? <laughs> he doesn't know, like, you're not supposed to just curse a tree and kill it. Like, that's not how you do it, right? And maybe he has something against fig trees, and maybe they're too sweet, or, you know, I, I don't know what is going on here. And my second thought was, this is what we do. When we go to the fridge and we're really hungry, and, and you've done this, right? You, you look in the fridge, you're really hungry, you haven't eaten all day, you look in the fridge, open it up, and you can't find anything. And then you slam the fridge door shut out of frustration. You just walk away, right? And my first thought is, is that what Jesus is doing? Is he just hangry? Like, is the, I mean, I know Jesus is fully God and fully man, and so maybe we can just relate to him in this way. Like, Jesus gets hangry too. But there's more to that. Right? Jesus is always showing us something, right? How does Jesus talk in parables, in stories? He, he shows us things. He's, he gives us illustration. He paints pictures. And that's what he's doing here. And it involves the temple. And we're going to see that. We're not going to get there yet, but we're going to see it. And then we're going to come back to the fig tree and see. Jesus wasn't just hangry. He's showing us something, right? So hold on. We're going to hit pause on that. Keep looking with me at the temple, verse 15. Look at that verse. It says, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, we need some context here, right? We, we we're seeing the temple, some things happening in the temple. We are in 2019 in Phoenix. We got to step out of that for a moment and put ourselves back in this moment with the temple to understand what's going on here. The temple was kind of like a church, but it was way more than that. It, it, again, was the center of religious practice. People traveled there, specifically at this week of the year, Passion Week, Passover Week. People traveled from all over to come to the temple to make their sacrifices. Jerusalem, the temple, this was the Mecca, the religious center of the universe, and there's two reasons for that. One is, this is where the presence of God was. Like the temple was a place where, where God and man could dwell, right? Since the Old Testament, that was the temple. It was also a place where you did make sacrifices for sin. So, so you might think this is a temple, this is a sacred place, and Jesus shows up to that place and walks in and quietly and reverently bows to pray. Maybe he sees some other people doing the same thing. Like picture when you go to a cathedral Right? You walk in, I know my family and I, we went to the, the chapel of the Holy Cross in Sedona, and it's this church in, built in the rocks, and you walk into that place, and, and it's very sacred, kind of like it feels like a temple, and you walk in, and, and you, you don't talk, and, and you tell your kids to, to stop talking and splashing the, the holy water, and, uh, 
and you're like, this is a sacred place. Like God's presence is here. And you kind of feel that because it's this old cathedral. You ever done that? And you would think maybe that's what Jesus does, like quiet, reverent. And everybody else, maybe they're quiet, reverent, and they look and they see God in the flesh, Jesus walking in, and they, and they begin to quietly bow. Hey, he's here. He's here. And it becomes even more sacred. And you might think some of that happens, but none of that happens. Look at the text with me. What happens? We see Jesus gets angry. We see this second unique moment. We've never seen this from Jesus. We see street Jesus. Jesus gets angry. Look at it with me. We see he starts driving people out. He's kicking people out of the temple. Imagine if you were walking into a cathedral and there's some crazy guy kicking everybody out of it. You would wonder, what's wrong with that guy? And some people there probably wonder, what's wrong with this guy? Who does he think he is? And Jesus is is kicking people out. And remember, this is Passover week. There's not just a few people at a farmer's market. This is Black Friday Walmart. There's lots of people at this massive temple. There's, There's crowds of people. And Jesus is going around. I don't know how he did it, but he's driving them out, Mark says. He's kicking them out. But that's not all he's doing. He's overturning tables. It says even seats. Now, as I read that, I thought, Okay, he's overturning tables. I can see that. He's, he's driving people out. I can see that. But he's overturning seats. You guys are sitting in seats because that's what they're for. And so I thought, man, did, did all those people just get up out of their seats and go to the bathroom? Or were they in the seats? And G- people are in the seats. And Jesus is overturning tables. And he's like, hey, yeah, you, I'm overturning you. And it says that the, some of those people in the seats were selling pigeons. And so he's just trying to imagine this crowd, this Black Friday, Walmart, people are getting driven out, seats, maybe even with people in them, are being overturned, money's hitting the ground, and pigeons are flying everywhere, and people are ducking. Street Jesus, right? This is is anger. And, And as I thought about that, I thought, this is usually, maybe you guys have heard Jesus clearing out the temple. You've heard this story before, whether you've been in the church or not. I thought, like, this, we always say, like, this is Jesus gets angry, and you can be angry and do not sin. There's a verse in the Bible that says that, and maybe that's what's going on here. But I, I get angry. I know none of you, none of you do, but I, I sometimes, on occasion, I, I get angry, right? And I don't do that. Right? Now, again, none of you get angry, but hypothetically, if you ever did, do you flip tables? Do you flip chairs with people still sitting in them, possibly? Do you scare the pigeons? Do you do that when you get angry? I I get angry, and I I say some things that I don't mean at times. I don't think, I I tried to think, I don't think I've ever flipped tables. (laughs) I don't think I've ever scared pigeons, maybe. Um, Jesus does. We always say Jesus gets angry. It's more than that, right? This is holy wrath. This is righteous judgment. Angry, more words in our English language that need to describe this moment, right? This is holy wrath. Now, why? Why is Jesus showing something we've never seen before? He's king, but he's also showing his holy wrath in a way we've never seen before. Why? Well, as we look at it, this is people in the temple, and if you notice in the text, people are they're not worshiping God. They're not dwelling in the presence of God. They're buying and selling merchandise. They've made the temple a marketplace. 
But it's not just that they're doing business. Later, he calls this, this place that you've made it a den of robbers. What, what Jesus is so upset about, while we're seeing Jesus' holy wrath, and he's flipping over things and doing things that you never do when you get angry, why is Jesus doing that? It's because this place, this place of worship unto God has been made a den of robbers. It's not even just that people are selling things. It's not just a marketplace. People are taking from people. People in religious power that are supposed to serve people, that are supposed to pray for people, that are supposed to help them experience the power and the prayer unto their great God. Those people, instead of doing that, they're cheating them out of their things. They're a den of robbers. And that brings righteous, holy wrath. And it should. Right, you need to know today, in our world today, you see church leaders, and we see this a lot, even just outside the church. We see authoritarian leadership, and, and we see that bleeding into the church, and we see things that just people are getting taken advantage of in churches, and you, and you see that, and maybe you have some holy wrath, and you should in those moments, because that's not what's supposed to be happening in the church, in the temple, What's supposed to be happening is religious leaders who model Jesus, who, who are both powerful and bold, but they're also meek and humble, and they're helping lead other people into the presence of God. That's what's supposed to be happening in the church today and back then. And Jesus, when he sees that's not happening, there's a den of robbers. People are being manipulated. I'm always going to protect the least of, least of these, and I'm going to bring my holy wrath in that moment. That's what's happening. Another reason why Jesus is getting so angry, there's holy wrath, is the danger of religion. This is where we come back to the fig tree. It's the danger of religion. You think about it, a temple is supposed to be a place of worship, a religious practice. And from afar, if you didn't really get up close, from afar, you would look at the temple, and again, it's Passover week, lots of people are there. And maybe there were people looking out at the temple and like, wow, those people must be really spiritual. Like when you get up to go to church in your neighborhood and you're driving out and everybody else is still like playing in their front yard, like they're probably like, wow, they're so spiritual. They're going to church. Like I'm getting ready to watch football. They're going to church. Like they must be so spiritual. And just like that, in that day, people would see a lot of activity going on at the temple. There's lots of activity. There's lots of people. And it might look like, wow, they're so spiritual. But as you get closer you see, wait a second, this is silly, shady religion. And that's the fig tree, right? We have a picture of the fig tree. You can guys can pull that up now. Um, I had to do a little research on fig trees to understand what was going on here. And I did that, and I thought about, uh, at our old house, we just moved about a month ago, and I thought about, we, we had a fig tree at our old house. And I thought about, what if I just dig that up and bring it here and show it to you guys? But I didn't know if our, our new uh, person who lives there would like that. So we got a picture that will have to do for you, right? But you see on the fig tree, look at it with me. You see the fig tree has a lot of green leaves. And from afar, it looks like, like maybe there's fruit there, but you wouldn't know because there's little small figs. And they're either up under the branches or they're on the ground. And so from afar, you might see that fig tree and be like, wow, there's there's probably fruit on that tree. And like, wow, I, that can probably nourish me along my walk. And, and it's probably really fruitful. But as you get closer, you have to actually check. And this would be the same way at our house. I would go check and I would see, oh, there's actually no figs here. But I couldn't tell that till I got up close. And actually only a few weeks out of the year do figs even 
bloom. And so Jesus, why is he cursing the fig tree? Is it because he didn't know what he was doing and he was hangry? No. Like Mark, if you notice, we're about to see it circle back. This story of the temple is sandwiched in between the story of the fig tree. There's intentionality behind this. Jesus is trying to say, hey, what's happening in the temple is like what happens with the fig tree. From afar, it looks fruitful, but when you get up close, there's not life, there's death. That there's death in religious practice and activity that doesn't bring worship to God. There's death in rituals and and taking advantage of people and using religious power in super weird ways. There's there's death. There's no fruit there. You get up close to that, there's no fruit there. And so Jesus, we're going to see, he he curses the tree. They walk around later. The tree is withered because Jesus is showing you, hey, that that picture of like religious from afar, good looking from afar, but you get up close and there's no fruit, that's not what I've come to bring. That's what I've come to transform. And when you meet with Jesus and when you practice the disciplines with Jesus and when you go to church and when you read your Bible and when you pray, those aren't just activities to look good from afar and to gain favor with God. Those are moments to see fruit in your life where the Holy Spirit of God indwells you and meets with you in special ways and moves through you. That's what Jesus is bringing. And so he's saying, hey, this Fig tree, this temple, this religious activity that's corrupt and insufficient, no more. I'm bringing something different. And Jesus prunes. Jesus removes some things and clears out the temple so he can replace it. And notice Jesus, this is who he is. He is the holy one, the righteous judge, all-powerful king who can clear out a temple. But he's also gracious. He is the lion and he's the lamb. And we see that because Jesus is not destroying, Jesus is pruning. In the temple, he's clearing out some things so they can be replaced by other things. We're going to see that in a second. He's going to describe what is the temple actually for? If it just stopped with Jesus clearing out the temple and really angry, we might all just sit back and be like, okay, well, Jesus, holy wrath, like, got to respect that. Street Jesus, never seen that before. But that's not Jesus. You see, Jesus is also the lamb. Jesus is also gracious, and he's gracious enough to replace things that have gone bad, to take those things out and replace them with what they're supposed to be. He does that in your life. The Puritans used to say this. Like, how do you dislodge something beautiful in the heart that we think is beautiful, like sin, like pride, like lust, like religion, that looks good? Like, how do you, how do you dislodge that? Do you just clear it out like Jesus did the temple? Does Jesus just call you to take that sin in your life, to take that self-righteousness and religion in your life, and just say, hey, stop that. Hey, clear that out. Does Jesus just do that? No. He says, how do you dislodge something beautiful in the heart? You replace it with a more beautiful thing. You clear out the temple to replace it with something better. And he begins to explain what that is. Our third point is prayer. Verse 17, look at the verse. It says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. 
And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so we see it just briefly. Jesus replaces, Jesus prunes and he replaces with prayer. He says, look at verse 17. He calls the temple his house. It's not your house. Religious leaders that have manipulated and done shady things, you think you're in control here. This is not your house. This is my house. This is God's house. He says it's a house of prayer. He's teaching them. And in verse 18, religious people, they're getting fearful. They start to plan his death. Why? Because when corrupt authoritarian leaders are manipulating the weaker people and they see somebody else come like Jesus who is holy, who is good, who is lion, who is lamb, and Jesus sees through that and he's about to take that away, they get scared and they want to take him out. But then you see the crowd They're astonished. Now, this is amazing to me. It's amazing because we just went through, here's how Jesus wrecked shop on everybody. Some of those people are still there, and they're astonished at his teaching. Like the people who just got booted out of the temple, and even verse 16 says, like, people were carrying stuff out of the temple, and Jesus is like, no, you can't carry anything out of the temple. It's like when your kids are walking out of the house, and they're in trouble, and they got something in their hands. And you see it, and you're walking out, and you've already had your holy wrath on them. And they're not supposed to have that toy that's in their hand, and they're kind of hiding it and trying to sneak out. And Jesus is like, drop it. Like, nobody's carrying anything out of the temple. Like, that's happening with these people, with this crowd. And those same people are now like, well, Jesus, you do make good points. (laughs) I mean, wow, the house of prayer, like, I never thought about it that way. As they just got their chair flipped over. And people are astonished. Because they're seeing a glimpse of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, but also the grace of Jesus to teach them. The lion, angry, roaring lion, but also the lamb. The crown, he's king, but also the cross. Hey, hey, let me me teach you. Here's what the temple is actually for. I'm going to prune, yes, but in my grace, I'm going to replace. This is prayer. This is what it's for. And people are astonished. So what does Jesus teach? He says, this is my house. This is a house of prayer. He says it's for all the nations, that it's not just one race. It's not just a Jewish race. It's not just one color, one ethnicity of people. It's not just people who grew up coming to the temple. It's not just people who are outside the temple. It's for everyone. It's a house of prayer. He continues to talk about what prayer looks like. Look at verse 20. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw this fig tree. It was withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus is probably like, thanks, Peter. I I knew it would be. (laughs) But uh, thanks for letting me know. Verse 22, and Jesus answers them, have faith in God. He keeps talking about prayer. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you in your trespasses. Now, some of you may be thinking, like, why switch from, like, pruning? Like, we got praise, we got pruning, now, now prayer. Why, why replace all the corruption with prayer? Like, shouldn't there be something else, like, more extravagant, more glorious? I mean, we think about prayer, and we think maybe it's kind of boring. Maybe it's kind of guilty because we don't pray enough. And, 
And we think of prayer that way. Jesus describes the power of prayer. Here's why why the power of prayer replaces the practice of religion. It's because prayer, verse 23, bold prayer, it can move mountains. Verse 24, that things that are asked in the name of Jesus, they can happen. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Tim, I pray for things all the time, and it ain't happened yet. Jesus doesn't give us a timeline, right? At some point, the things you are praying for in the name of Jesus, they're going to happen. They may happen in eternity. But there's power in that prayer. Verse 25, prayer unlocks forgiveness from God and for others. That prayer is, is powerful. And what Jesus is showing you is that bold prayer, confident prayer, prayer in the name of Jesus, it can move mountains. That religious practice, it can't do that. That the broken system of religion and people taking advantage of each other, that can't produce this kind of fruit. That prayer can't, that practice can't produce uh, that kind of life change. Prayer can. That's the power of prayer. That's why Jesus prunes and he replaces with prayer because prayer is powerful. I've seen this in my life. I see this in our church on a weekly basis as I get ready to preach every Sunday morning. There's a few people who pray for me. There's a few people every Sunday, every Sunday morning, my my phone dings, and I honestly, sometimes I just glance at it because I know what it says. I know it says, hey, we're praying for you, Tim, today as you get ready to preach God's word. There's specific moments when things are a little bit weightier and and something blew up that morning on Sunday morning because it usually does in my house, in my life. Saturday night, things are heavy, stuff's not coming through for the church as we get to prepare for this Sunday every every Sunday, and there's particular moments where people, usually my wife, will drop a card in my Bible and say, I'm praying for you. Like, while you preach, I'm praying for you. Right now, I'm praying for you. And there's people that do that. And I experience the mountains being moved. I experience, like, whatever distractions are going on that week prior, whatever's not coming together for our Sunday service, I experience when I open the Bible, and I did this morning, and I look at this card that's saying, hey, I'm praying for you, and I look at that, and things shifted in my heart. And as I'm getting those text messages, and even as we're praying and worshiping and singing to God before the message, like, just let the the cat out of the bag, like, not always at 10.01 a.m. am I ready to preach, like, I mean, I'm ready, like, I manuscript my sermons. Like, I'm ready, but I'm not ready. You know what I'm saying? But after that fourth song and after some prayer and proclamation and some praise, then I'm ready. And, and then God's begin to move in, in my life, and I'm ready to preach with, with authority and passion because he's given me that word through prayer. And listen, this is what prayer does in your life. This is why in those seat back buckets, Molly, in those seat back buckets... We have connect cards and we have little forms that say prayer request because there's power in prayer. It can move mountains. It can change things in your life if you ask things in Jesus' name. And so people, I don't know if you know this, people take those cards and they write prayer requests on them. And every Tuesday or Wednesday, our staff gets together and we pray over those requests for God to move mountains in your life. And even some of the mountains we don't know about, you just say, hey, I need prayer for my marriage. I need prayer physically. I need prayer for this sin. And we take those cards out, our whole staff, and we take them out. And one person takes one, and one person takes one. And we pray over those things because there's power in prayer. And Jesus is is taking us through this process as he's getting near to his death and saying, what is important? What's powerful? 
It's praise. And to have praise, you need some pruning. And to prune, you need to replace those distorted things with prayer because there's power in prayer. There is that in his day. There is that in your day. And so our question as we close today is, what in your life needs to be pruned? What in your life needs to be pruned? What religion, self-righteousness, legalistic tendencies, you think if I just go to church, if I just memorize these verses, then God will approve of me, and you've forgotten about the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And maybe today, that religion in your life needs to be pruned. And you just need to, I mean, if I'm honest, Tim, I just go through the motions. And I've been doing this my whole life. I grew up in a pew. And maybe for you today, like, what needs to be pruned so you can experience the power of prayer It's religion. It's self-righteousness. And Jesus needs to drive that out of you. And not just be angry with you, but also draw you to prayer in his grace. Maybe some of you, that that barrier that needs to be pruned is, is not religion, it's rebellion. And it's that sin in your life. It keeps popping up, and you know it's there, and there's hints of it, and there's cycles of it, and it's just that one, I'm just a little prideful, and it's just that one gossip, like I like to speak my mind, I'm just an extroverted person, it's just that one lustful thought, I mean, it's just these little things, but but in reality, it's keeping you from prayer. Does that ever happen to you? Like you have some sin in your life, and, and you don't pray as much, right? You're in the car, you could pray. But you know what you did last night, and you know what you thought this morning as you left the house. And so you think, well, I don't, I don't want to pray, and it's inhibiting you. And that needs to be pruned in your life so that you can experience the power of prayer and praise that Jesus wants you to experience. What needs to be pruned in your life so you can experience the power of prayer, of praise that Jesus wants you to experience? This is what the cross is all about. Uh, at the cross something really unique happens. There's a curtain in the temple. And that curtain in the temple, again, this religious practice, man dwells with God, but there's a curtain because we can't get too close to a holy God. And so there's a curtain, there's a barrier. And we read in the Gospels, when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens to the curtain? It's torn. And it's not just torn like you could stitch it back. It's torn, it says explicitly, from top to bottom. The barrier's removed. The religion's removed. The rebellion's removed. When? When Jesus dies on the cross. When King Jesus, who rides in, Hosanna, save us, save us. When King Jesus shows up and he shows you the majesty but also the meekness. I'm going to ride in. I'm going to be a king, but I'm also going to die on the cross. So that curtain That barrier, that pruning can take place. It can be removed and replaced with the grace of Jesus Christ and prayer and praise in your life. And so it's fitting today that we're going to end this time. We're going to take communion. And we're going to take the bread that's up here at one of these two stations. We're going to dip it in the wine or juice. And we're going to remind ourselves the curtain in the temple, the religion, the rebellion that kept me away from God those sins in your life right now, that self-righteousness in your life right now, that curtain, that barrier, it's been pruned, it's been removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not your works, not your church attendance, but by his blood, his death on your behalf. 
And we're going to take the bread. We're going to dip in the juice or wine. We invite you to come down this middle row and go down the sides and partake in communion and be reminded, praise, pruning, and prayer. And God wants to work that out in your life. And he's can do, he can do that this morning as we partake in communion, as we pray. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this word. God, I pray amidst the fig trees and the flipping over tables, we would have clarity now of what you're trying to teach us. And God, that we would have not just clarity, but we would have a desperation to learn more, to go back and read this again and fully understand what what religion is in our life. What what practices are in our life that are keeping us from you, if we're honest, that need to be pruned so we can experience the power of prayer and praise, the power to move mountains. So God, I pray as we come in a moment and take communion that we would consider that and you would show us that and you would help us with that in your truth and in your grace, in your glory and in your humility. Teach us, God, we need it. We pray that in the name of Jesus, amen.